0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org.
1: This morning, we are going to be starting a new series as we enter into the season of Advent um, called A True and Better King. And what we are doing in this series is we are going to take a look at scriptures that talk about Christ as our ultimate king and the king that our souls long for. And so this morning, we are going to read out of Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. If you don't have one, um, there should be a copy, uh, under a seat around you. And if you don't own one, as always, feel free to keep that one as a gift from us. So this morning we are going to be in Luke chapter two, verse 11. Uh, And when you get there, if you are able, would you please stand with us for the reading of God's word? Verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Good morning to you this morning. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, we're so glad that uh, you decided to make us a part of your week, especially uh, if it's your first time here. We just want to say um, thanks so much that, that you decided to, to join us this morning. Uh, it's the Christmas season, and that's exciting and also a little bit relieving. All right. Uh, it's been a rough year, but I'm so glad that we're at Christmas time. Uh, and I know so many of you have already been in Christmas mode since, like, September. So... We're glad to catch up with you on that, and we're all with you again. Uh, also, I just want to say thank you to all of the volunteers and people who did this amazing job uh, here at Providence to make the Christmas season look awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, Advent and Christmas is um, it's it's such a big deal for uh, for many reasons, uh, and for more reasons than than simply you know Christmas movies or lights or presents. Uh, obviously the heart the very heart of the Advent season is over two thousand years ago human history made a seismic shift when the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem and and here's the thing the crazy thing about Christmas time is uh, no one can even deny that this is true even the most ardent atheist will admit that whatever happened over two thousand years ago could be the single most significant event in human history. And the reason that I say that, because you might be saying, whoa, you know, isn't the resurrection that? And I would say, yes, but here's why I say that this might be is because the resurrection is predicated upon the death of Jesus and the death of Jesus is predicated on the birth of Christ. And so the incarnation could be the single most significant event in human history. And even those who don't believe agree, you know, we kind of have uh, shaped our entire calendar around the birth of Jesus. The way that we see human history, we think of before Christ and in the year of our Lord. Um, even, even right now, uh, culturally all around the world, people will be celebrating the birth of Jesus. Uh, and the true story of Christmas is not just important to remember. Um, like, like, like we don't just focus on, uh, not disrespecting Jesus. So we, you know, we get our kids around like once, like, listen, the reason for the season, you know, it's, it's not only that, uh, we focus on the birth of Christ because what happened over 2,000 years ago is still deeply significant and meaningful for your life right now. And it matters and, and it should shape us. And um, if, if we only think of it as something that we're trying to conserve because, well, it's the right thing to do, then we're missing the very life uh, that is given to us at Christmas time in Jesus Christ, but also the life that He's giving into your soul. Uh, through the story of Christmas. And so uh, the Christmas story, you need to know, it speaks to the, your deepest longings, meets your deepest needs. What Jesus represents in the Christmas story coming into earth is the most important thing for you to consider, consider this winter. And yes, even especially maybe in the 2020 winter. So, um, And then secondarily, what, what I'd like to make the case for over the next few weeks is um, why it's good that we make a big deal out of Christmas. So, like, if you're that person right now that you've been trying to, you've been listening to Christmas songs at your house and you've annoyed your spouse, I want to defend you. Okay, I want to come alongside you. I want to, I want to help you. If you're the one who always turns on like 99.1 or 89.3 and you listen to the Christmas songs all the way through, you know, you started wearing a Santa hat and Halloween. Uh, you know, you dressed up as some Christmas character at Halloween, you know, just to bring a little joy into the season. I, I want to defend you. I want, I want to say that, you know, the, the, the Christmas explosion that happened in your house probably over the last month is a good thing to make much of it. Because there's no way that we could outmatch just how glorious it really is. There's no way we could overdo it. It's, it's that significant. So before we jump in, what I'd love to do is just pray for us. Ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, here we are, we, we're so grateful that we have the, the blessing, the opportunity to worship you this morning together in spirit and in truth. We thank you that we have your word that's constantly shaping us and molding us and speaking truth into our heart and into our lives. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to your word and that we can look there for true healing and find the Lord Jesus over and over and over again. And Lord, we ask now as we we begin to reminisce on the story that is over 2,000 years old, that the power of the story of Christmas and the Advent would, by the power of your spirit, invade our hearts this morning. (laughs) Remind us that it's not just a season for the kids, but for all of your children. Help us, Lord, to, to see the... Overwhelming majesty of the king in the manger at Bethlehem and to be moved, to be encouraged, to be affirmed. For those who are weary, let it be a strengthening word. For those who are discouraged, I ask my God that you would bring the encouragement necessary. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so. Luke chapter 2, verse number 11. This is a short portion. I'm going to back up a little bit. I'll just read up from starting from verse 8. But this is the story of the angel's announcement to the shepherds. If you go through the, the the gospels, pretty much the synoptic gospels, but if you go through the first three gospels, what you'll find is that there's these stories of the angel showing up to Mary, the angel showing up to Joseph, and then the angel showing up to the shepherds. And and the angels are proclaiming, you know, the Lord's to be born. And, and this is the story of the angel showing up, Most say the angel Gabriel showing up as a messenger from God to bring the news to the shepherds that the Lord is going to be born. He's going to be born tonight, and you need to go, and you need to be witnesses to this birth. And so this is the way the Bible records it, starting in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared unto them. The glory of God shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, or don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, and it's going to be for all people. Now, here's the key verse that we're focusing in on this morning. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, what I'd like to do is break down that that proclamation from the angels, because there's not a wasted word here. This was not just a... This was not just a moment where the angels were saying fluffy titles, you know, um, you, you might see that maybe in movies where the, the king gets announced and they kind of, they rattle off all of these uh, uh, titles that this king holds. Or if you watch like the royal weddings, you know, like Prince Harry apparently has so many titles, I don't even know what to do with them, uh, you know, and they just kind of list all of those off, but they're significant. They mean something. They all hold some sort of meaning, and that's why even now today this still happens when royalty is announced, because all of these have a significant meaning, and the angel's doing the same here, because the royalty of heaven is being born, and he's listing out these titles. Now, the first thing that's significant, and I think it is the the shaping uh, clause or the shaping line with this entire announcement, is that unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now, why is that significant? Because the city of David was Bethlehem. And if you remember in your Old Testament, there's two lines of of kings. There's the line of Saul and there's the line of David. And David's Davidic line is the line that carries on. And Saul's line is the one that's cut off because of his disobedience and lack of repentance. And so the angel's showing up saying, in the city of kings, the king's being born. In the city of David, which is the anointed, David was the anointed king, the one chosen by Samuel, meaning chosen by God to be the long-lasting, everlasting Davidic kingdom in Israel, right? The angels are saying, there's a king that's gonna be born in the city of kings. Now, I want you to think of the the importance that we place like on presidential elections, right? It's kind of a big deal for us. Every four years, another person is going to take over the executive branch and we think it's important and and rightfully so. But I want you to multiply that by about a million and you're just scratching the surface of how important it is to hear the edict of a king being born in a monarchy, right? Especially to the Israelites, to the Jews here. And not only is Jesus born... In the city of kings, but the angelic announcement is going to go further and say, the angel's going to say, he is the Christ, Christ the king. Jesus, in other words, is the Messiah. This word Christos means Messiah or anointed one. That's something Brendan even said while we were worshiping, that the Jews had all been waiting for for hundreds of years. Depending upon when you actually go back into the Old Testament and decide when the the announcements of the, the Messiah are coming, you might even take it back to Moses. So thousands of years, they've been waiting for this Messiah, this Christos. And if you know an Orthodox Jew today, they still are. (laughs) If you know an Orthodox Jew that doesn't believe that the the coming of Christ was the Messianic uh, reign of Jesus entering the world, then they still are looking for this Messiah. So for the angel to show up and tell these shepherds, these Jews that are in the fields at night, that, hey, the Messiah is coming, this is is significant. The anointed one is going to be here. Now, Jesus shied away from this title when he was on earth. He rarely called himself the Messiah. They would ask him these things and he would kind of work around and and, and, and discuss with them. And there's a reason for that. Um, he didn't want for anyone to misunderstand his first advent. He didn't want anyone to misunderstand why his, he would come the first time. Because for the Jews, they didn't think there was going to be a first coming and then a second coming. They just thought it was going to be one, uh, one coming of the Messiah and the Messiah was going to come in and kind of handle business. And I was reading a commentator and I thought this is really helpful for why Jesus shied away from the title of the Messiah. And this is should be put up behind me, but this is a a commentator says there's a few reasons why the early church or the early Jews would have thought, Oh, the Messiah is here. That means, and he lists out about four things. Number one, it means the Messiah was going to violently cast out the foreign nations occupying Jerusalem. That's the first thing. So the Messiah was going to show up and they were no longer going to be under Roman occupation. Now, this starts to make sense, right, when you read the Gospels and all the disciples are like, so when are you going to do it? When are you going to finish off these guys, you know? It's like, we love the whole you're doing miracles, water into wine, but you remember James and John are like, what about calling fire from heaven? Just one time. Let's just try it. Because they're thinking this, right? Another time they get get so stoked about Jesus that they're like, they try to put a crown on his head to make him king. Scripture records that he walks through the midst of them and he refuses to be king but it's because they're looking for this. Number two, the Messiah was supposed to judge all the nations of the earth and cause those nations to serve him under his yoke. Meaning they were going to be in subjection to him, right? Number three, the Messiah was going to reign over Israel in all of wisdom and all righteousness. And that remo- that includes, that involves removing all foreigners from the land, purging the land of unrighteous Israelites in order to eliminate all oppression and gather to himself a holy people. Now, As Christians, we look at that and you're probably thinking, that sounds outlandish. Why would they ever believe that? But you need to think with the mind of the the Jewish, like first century Jew with the Old Testament, all of that would make a ton of sense, wouldn't it? Because all that was lined out there, now that we have the gospel, we understand that this looks a lot like the second coming when Jesus returns and actually does set everything right. But the first coming was not going to look like this, and Jesus was vehement about this. He told them that he wasn't going to look like this. They didn't know the Messiah was going to come a first time, that he was going to disarm the powers and the rulers with his humble life, his humble death, and then his powerful resurrection. They had no idea this was going to happen. But nonetheless, here comes the angel, and he wants them to know, and this is important. Jesus' first coming, he came as the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. He came as Jesus Christ, the king. And this is no small thing. The angel wants us to know it. Now, here's what the Bible teaches. Now, I want you to think about this and why it's so important for us in Advent season. The Bible teaches us the world has always been and will always be filled with kings and rulers of empires, and they are ruled by sinful people, broken people, fallible people. And then underneath those rulers, what we have is a kingdom that's populated by sinful people, broken people, fallible people. This is what the Bible teaches us. And this is so essential because it makes sense of the world that you live in if you understand that this is what the Bible's teaching you. I want to walk you through just from from the jump, from in Genesis, why we know the Bible teaches this. The very first kingdom that we kind of run across in the Bible starts in the Tower of Babel story. Babel becomes this kingdom where everybody unites together and decides they want to reject and cast off God, and they want to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. Obviously, they get scattered across all all the earth by the Lord because they were trying to accomplish a feat without God and basically be gods themselves. And from that moment, you go from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. Abraham now is told, leave your father, leave your country, leave your kindred, and go and walk wherever I tell you to walk. So Abraham leaves his dad's house and goes into the, the desert of Mesopotamia, right? He leaves Ur. And Listen, you might think this sounds like a really good adventure. You're picturing like the Hobbit, right? You know, and they, they leave out and it's really good. No, the first thing that Abraham meets is an evil tyranny with a bunch of evil kings. He meets a famine. He meets terrible things on the road. It's like, why, why would God tell me to leave? You know? So he leaves his, his, parent, his parents' house, his mom's basement playing Xbox. He goes out and the first thing that happens is something bad. And, and he, he, he meets up with these kings that are so evil that he looks to his wife and says, you're my sister now. Don't say a word because he's terrified. You get other kingdoms all throughout the Old Testament, right? The The kingdom of Egypt, the Ammonite kingdom, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all the way to Rome, which is where we find ourselves here. And it's all the same story. There are always kings, emperors, rulers, Caesars, who are evil, broken, fallible people, who rule a kingdom full of evil, broken, fallible people. And so, Everyone is looking for the right ruler. Everybody's looking for the right king. Everybody hoped in David that he'd be that guy. And listen, sometimes we as Christians, we misread it, and we think David was that guy. But you really got to read the Bible. The Bible's brutally honest. David was not that guy. I mean, he did a great job in some areas, and then in other areas, he was a complete failure. (laughs) Um, So much so, he was such a failure in a particular part of his life that he carried that over into his son Solomon. And then Solomon was like a triple failure. You know, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live, except he couldn't figure out that having 700 wives and 300 concubines wasn't wise. (laughs) I mean, that seems very basic, right? Now, I hope you don't need much convincing that the Bible is spot on here. I really hope that not only because it records it, but sometimes we are blinded by our own personal comforts and convenience to see this is the world that you and I live in too. It's no different 2000 years later. And this year has further underscored the truth that we live in a society and in a world where there are broken, sinful, fallible people who lead and broken, sinful, fallible people who follow. I was reading a, an article by, uh, by the BBC uh, most recently, and, and they said this about... Uh, something that's happening in China that doesn't get spoken about very much. It says the Australian Strategic Policy Institute says that there's 380 suspected facilities in the Xinjiang region, some 40% more than previous estimates. China says its aim with these facilities is to tackle poverty and religious extremism in Xinjiang. Well, what you don't know, that's, that's a word salad for, there are concentration camps in China. They now have found that there's 380 suspected facilities, which is almost half more, 40% more than what they thought, and it's a re-education camps happening right now in 2020. You're like, no, never. We would never go back to that. Of course. Why? Because we have sinful, broken, fallible people that lead and sinful, broken, fallible people that follow. And the Bible tells us this. It's we're on this kind of this cyclical track. The children of Israel, we're on that track. We're on that track. Now, why do I even make, make much of that? I make much of that because when the angel shows up and says, you're going to have a different kind of king who's showing up, he's God's chosen king. Now you can understand why the, the reason of, or the purpose of Christmas brings such hope to the human heart because the angel showing up and telling them there's going to be a new kind of king means the rule of all of human history is about to be broken with the one singular exception, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem tonight. Could you imagine being the shepherds? Tonight, all of that's going to be broken with one little baby. And the Israelites of of Jesus's day would have been longing for this kind of relief. Now, I think we should be longing for this kind of relief too. The Christ has come. This Christmas, we should be exuding joy because the chosen King was born and the anointed one has already come. And I think the significance can be lost on us. And listen to me, I'm not throwing stones here because it's even lost on me at times. The significance of this is lost on us because we live in a world that hides the truth in plain sight. It's like we're going to spend billions of dollars over the course of Christmas, we're going to have Christmas everywhere, and yet deep down we're missing what's so significant about Christmas, which means that we no longer have to be pining for the chosen person or human being that's going to show up and fix it all. He already came. He already entered into human history, and he already did everything that needs to be done to fix it. If we aren't careful, we will be gloomy people as Christians, and I just want to say that should not be so. Man, should we not be that? Listen, I understand that sometimes it can be difficult. We've talked about suffering and persecution for like a, a whole trimester. I'm ready to talk about something like joy. And that's what we should be as a joyful people. If you only watch the news, I'm convinced you can't be that. <laughs> I, I'm convinced that what will happen is slowly but surely you'll get transformed into being just like every other person who thinks, why is nothing ever good happening? And the truth is, the best thing has already happened. It's why it's called the good news. The gospel is true. The most amazing truth is given to us at the Christmas story. Everything has already changed. And that is the down payment for what will change eternally forever and ever and ever. I love that Paul mourns for the unbelieving Jews in, in the New Testament. If you, I don't know if you've ever read that, but like in Romans 11, Paul has this like lament for the unbelieving Jews. He says, I wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ, that my brothers might come into the fold. He just mourns for unbelieving Jews. And, and and I understand that because the truth is some of us as Christians, we live like unbelieving Jews. We live with the promises, the law, the truth, and we've forgotten the Messiah has already come. It's like we look at the second coming as though it's the first. No, the first coming should Root us in hope, in joy, in all of those promises that are in the Old Testament. We already have that. And now we're looking forward to just the fulfillment and consummation. And when I look at the unbelieving Jews, I mourn and then I think, oh man, functionally it's just like us. And I want to say this Christmas, our search for a, you know, a special kind of person to save everything and make everything right needs to be over. It already is over. You don't have to search. And listen to me, let me let me tell you why this is so important. And I don't have tons of time, but I'll say. Anxiety is rooted in that search. Our anxieties are rooted in the search for someone or something that's going to make all of the unright right. And I want to tell you, Jesus already has come. And this is why last week in 1 Peter, when when Peter tells us that we ought to cast all of our anxieties onto Christ. Why? Because he already cares for you. He's already come. Cast your anxieties onto Jesus. All of the things that you see that are not right, all the injustices of the world, all of your personal sin, problems, struggles, Christ has already come, and we don't have to search and look anywhere else. Okay, so that's the first thing, the Messiah, the Christ. He's Christ the king. Number two, he is a savior king. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the Bible doesn't only teach us that the world is broken. It teaches us that God is intent on rescuing us. Now, that's good, isn't it? So it's like if you only start with the front end where God's like, "Listen, the world's all messed up and broken, I think that's where you only stay depressed and, and struggling. But the Bible also teaches God is intent on rescuing us from that brokenness. The issue with the world is much simpler within the common understanding that we would see if you opened up you know the New Yorker magazine. Is it the politics, is it the media? is it the rich people is it the hol- is it the you know the Hollywood people is it other countries like the Russians or the Chinese, the Iranians. Is it my boss? Is it my in-laws? Is it my lack of power and all of this? These are all things that you think are wrong with the world. And I just want to say at the core of the human condition, there is a fundamental refusal to acknowledge God and give thanks to him as God. And that is the root problem. It's sin. That's the root problem. It's so much more fundamental. I said it was simple. I didn't say it was easy to swallow, but it's fundamentally simpler than everything that everyone will convince you is wrong with the world. We haven't moved beyond trying to desperately build a kingdom without pain, suffering, hardship, or tears that rejects God as its creator. We haven't moved beyond that. We look at the Tower of Babel and we think, what fools? And then we realize we do the same things. We all want to build a kingdom that excludes God but his perfect and utopia and has no pain, has no suffering, has no hardship. And we we think we can do this without God. We haven't moved beyond this effort. And so we struggle. Augustine said it like this, God, we were made for you. And therefore our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in thee. See, Augustine understood that at the core of the human heart is the lack of acknowledgement of God, and therefore, restlessness is the rule, not the exception. It's the default. It's like, you know, when you get your kid's toy on Christmas, and it's got a default mode, and you have to turn it into something else? Like, the default mode of the human heart is to try and find rest outside of its resting place, which is God, to try to find peace outside of the the origin of that peace, which is God. And Augustine understood this, that we're going to be constantly searching and pining and hurting until we... Look to the Lord. Another way to look at it is we're constantly trying to mitigate the effects of sin on our own strength, while refusing to acknowledge our desperate need for God and the reason for sin in the first place. It's like we're looking around at all the effects of sin and we think that maybe better policy or whatever is going to fix that. Or listen, I'm all for trying to mitigate the effects of suffering. You know, it's why I think that people are crazy that go into the hospital and refuse pain medication. I'm like, my God, it's common grace. Ibuprofen helps, you know? But nonetheless, I don't think that at the very core, are we going to be able to address pain by just medicating it? I'm talking about pain at the very fundamental level. Pain at the very fundamental level comes because of sin and brokenness. We are culturally convinced that we need saving from people. We need saving from our bosses. We need saving from our governors. We need saving from our nation. We need saving from our other regimes, other tyrants. And this is the very folly that I think Jesus came to clear up. The greatest enemy of the Jews at this time was not their Gentile slaves masters. It was their spiritual slave master sin. Jesus shows up and they think, Jesus, save us from, from Rome. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to save you from your taskmaster sin. It's way worse than you think it is. And listen, you and I have this problem too. We think all of the externals in our everyday life are our biggest enemies. And Jesus shows up to say, I, I'm come to save you from the deepest enemy of all, sin, sin. Sin has infiltrated its way into our very hearts, and it's made it, it made, it's made it hard for us to see God. It's made it hard for us to, to hear God. It's made, us, it made it hard for us to feel him, and Jesus comes to say, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to take out your heart of stone where you can, we can't even feel the presence of God. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh where you're tender again. I'm going to take your dirty hands you know, that you can't even lift up to God because you feel so ashamed. I'm going to wash them clean again. I'm going to take this big, hefty punishment of God's wrath that hangs over you every day, abiding on you like a cloud that will never go away, you know? Like the filthy stain, like, you know, pig pen off of, you know, the Peanuts cartoons that just walks around, he's filthy. He said, I'm going to take that nastiness, that filth, that cloud that hangs over, and I'm going to shed my blood so that it's gone forever and ever. Sin is the greatest issue. It is the issue. And Jesus came to tell the Jews, I, I am the, the savior king because you need to be saved from so much more than Caesar. <laughs> you need to be saved from the spiritual Caesar of your heart. Kids are a lot of fun. I'm, I, I, I was thinking about this some as I was preparing. I'm probably not going to tell this story in the 1045 because my son will be here and I don't want to embarrass him. But it's funny. You guys get to, I get to embarrass him with y'all. But uh. <laughs> Children are a lot of fun they're a lot they 're a great joy to be around you know they um, they do things and I find myself reprimanding my child and then hearing in my reprimanding of my child, oh man that 's what the Lord says to me, and I never listen and then i 'm you know just sick to my stomach and I still discipline him you know, but whatever <laughs> my son, he has a power wheel that we got him in, and it 's really cool my my truck has like a replica tr- little power wheel truck. that l- it's, it's a mirror exact one. And my father-in-law got it for him. And he loved that thing. And he still loves it. But at some point in the last like three or four years since we got it for him, he broke it. And just, you know, it's broken. And so I see him out there and he's, what he does now is he gets Jane, he puts her in it and he pushes her around in it, which is like, it's an awful, awful way to play. But he loves it. And he pushes her around in it. But now I, I, when I when he first broke it, I saw him out there. And he, my son's like a, a fixer. He has like a mind that works structurally, you know? And so he, he goes into my, uh, my, ba- my barn, my area where I have uh, tools, and I said, get out of there. So he goes into his room, and he puts a tool belt on, and he's got all of his tools and stuff. He's got a hammer, and he goes over there, and he's looking at it, and he's like, uh, like getting under it and trying to push it around. I'm like, what is he doing? And then he just takes his hammer and starts hitting it, just hitting it everywhere. And I'm like, son, son, do you need help? No, dad, no. Like, no, I don't need any help. Like, don't get over here. I'm like... I don't think that's going to work, and he just keeps hitting it. I'm watching him for like 30 minutes. He's just hitting this thing, and then he would go back in there and try it. You know, getting pushed, the, and then he just keeps hitting it. Now, the thing is, I have to say this to his defense is that you know whenever uh, uh, the power wheel's battery dies, if you just give it a little bit of time, it'll get a little more juice and it'll go. So one time he did that, and he did it for like 30 minutes. And then he personally he's like, "Dad, Dad, I fixed it," you know, <laughs> and so he's going. But this time it was broken, and uh, and there was no there was no fixing, and he was so disappointed. And and as I was thinking about that story, I was like. They think they can fix the problem. My son thought he could fix the problem without facing the most fundamental issue, which is that it was broken at its core and he couldn't just hit it with a hammer. And we need rescuing, but we, and we understand all of the symptoms of our brokenness, but we think that it can be fixed without addressing its most fundamental issue. Like we can't conquer worldwide hunger or international conflict unless we've acknowledged that the problem is at the root. We are sinfully broken. We need a savior, but we don't want to acknowledge that. And the Bible tells us this. It says that at the root of sin, Romans chapter one, there is a refusal to acknowledge God as God and give thanks to him as creator. It's why we've redefined Thanksgiving as giving thanks just generally. Can you think of the madness of this? Yes, who are you giving thanks to? It's like the universe. Who created the universe? Hmm. I'm just putting out good vibes on Thanksgiving. It's like, we, and we think this is intellectual. We genuinely, these are, these, are, these are our betters culturally. This is what they say. Just give thanks. Send out your thanks into the world. They're on Instagram, you know? It's like, man, we, we, just, we like this, we eat it up. What is at the root of that kind of comment? I know there's a God. I know I should be thankful to him, but I I refuse to acknowledge him. I would rather thank the stars, my lucky stars, than I will thank the God who made them. And I know what you're thinking. Court, I get it. Jesus is the answer. Reason for the season. I get it. And I just want to say, pause for a moment. When is the last time that you yourself, not generally, not theoretically, you yourself have admitted and put put yourself in the place of needing saving? Not like, yeah, I was in need of saving past and Jesus saved me. That's true theologically. But there's also some theological language in the New Testament that says you and I are being saved day by day. When's the last time you put yourself personally into that place of I'm being saved? I'm in need of saving. I am drowning in the ocean with my arms up and Christ is regularly pulling me out of my own brokenness and sin. See, Christ the Lord is our only hope. When we consider the great conflicts of our world and hardship. I hope you have that singular focus. People need to hear the message of Christ, the savior King more than any other message. Only Christ can free us from the bondage of sin because only Christ stared the temptation of sin and Satan himself in the face. You remember the desert scene where Jesus goes into the desert, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan shows up. That's a rough day. If you've ever fasted, you're like, oh, it's really tough. Could you imagine fasting for 40 days and on the 40th day you have a visitor? It's the devil. That's awful. And it's not like you're just at your house either where you can like try to sleep off your your chills that you have after day 40. He's in the desert. Satan shows up. What does Satan do? He tells him to worship and serve him and not God. God. He tells them, I'll fix it all for you. I'll, I'll give you the empires and the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus says, no, 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 three times straight. Only Jesus died in the place of sinners in the likeness of man. Only Jesus rose from the dead over principalities and powers. You know, at Providence, we say it's, this is the message we want to make unignorable. We want to live our lives and use our energies in a way that there's no obstacles that are in the way for people who need to hear this message. And that this message is not a message about you and me being good enough or getting wise enough or, you know, one day waking up and saying, you know what, I know what's good for my kids, church. This is a message that Christ alone can save and that he invaded our lives in a myriad of different ways. And thanks be to God that he did, because if it weren't for him, where would we be? We share it. And then I just want to make this case, and then we live it. We live it by refusing to accept man-made solutions to God-sized problems. And the way we do that, listen to me, is that we personally repent of our sin, and we find healing in Jesus. That's how we do it. I know we think, you know, there's a million different ways if we could just get other people to repent of their sin. Listen, I agree. Here's the thing. The Spirit does that. We repent of our sin. It's the only thing that right now is in your hands this morning, which is to decide, I'm going to repent of my sin, both not just... The one time that I did it in summer camp, but I'm talking about the stuff that's still trying to own you right now. All right, last one. What else does this this line say about Jesus? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is what? He's Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. The mystery of the incarnation is found in the final element of this angelic announcement. Jesus Christ is the Savior King, but He's not only that, He is the Lord. The Lord. Jesus is God in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity wrapped himself in human flesh and became like us. Right here, the the Greek Lord is not like the capital L-O-R-D that we find in the Old Testament, right? The the Yahweh, the I am. But nonetheless, this Lord means that Jesus is the possessor of a thing. He's the owner of a thing. What is he the owner of? Everything. (laughs) Everything. This is what Colossians would go on to tell us. Paul would say that this is the mystery of the Godhead that Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God, that nothing was created outside of him being the one that created it. So the angel shows up and says, we not only have a Messiah king that was chosen by God, we not only have a savior king who's gonna fix the deepest problem that we have, but that God himself, the second man, the second person of the Trinity, steps into human history, wraps himself in flesh, and and in particular, let me blow your mind, in a baby's body. That's crazy town. So many, so many historians have looked back and said it's probably the craziest uh, it's the craziest claim of Christianity. They don't even look at the resurrection and say that's crazy. I mean, they do say it's crazy. They just say it's not nearly as crazy as God being a baby. <laughs> that God decided he was going to be a baby. Jesus' birth and the coming of God himself, to, rec- to reckon the mess of the world is the most staggering thing. Roman emperors may be on the list of the most narcissistic of all time, but few emperors flexed their ruling authority like Caesar and Caesar in the time of Jesus' birth was a very evil man, a very strong man with tons of power. And then God shows him up by saying, I'm going to come in the likeness of a child and you will do nothing about it. He even moves into the heart of Caesar Augustus to have this census happen so that the census will bring Jesus' parents back to the city of Bethlehem so that, oh no, Mary's gonna have the baby and Jesus is born in the city of David even though he's from Nazareth. Like, you gotta picture this, this guy Caesar sitting on his throne thinking there's nothing that I can't do, there's no one that I can't command and God says, I wanna show my power through him. And he does it in the most left-handed way, right? It's not like God shows up and just, slays Caesar, kills all the armies of Rome. No, he, he actually moves in the heart of this guy to, to get done what God intends to get done. It's incredible. Now, what makes the story really hit though of Christmas? And now this is key for me. What makes the story really hit is the same thing I think that makes most Hollywood stories really hit. Like why is it that certain movies bring in billions and billions of dollars? Y'all ever thought about this? Like, some are really, really good, and then some of them are like, eh, not so good. Now, I know there's somebody here that's like, you're a real media critic, you're like an artsy person, and so you love the indie films, and you're like, no, they're amazing, and here's why. But most of the people are like, eh, that's weird. And I'm not, I am not. hope I'm not offending you, you know? It's like just like 90% of people are like, eh, oh, not really crazy about, you know, the the French film that came out last year or whatever. It's like, if you look at the top 10 movies, everybody like everybody just agreed they liked Jack and Rose, you know? They just liked that Jack like gave himself up for Rose. They liked that. Apparently everybody likes superheroes. Like 5 of the 10 billion dollars everybody just likes to see Captain America take his shirt off. Apparently. But why? I think they all make are so successful because they have a hint of the deeper stories and the deeper truths that are woven into the fabric of creation. One of my personal favorite movie archetypes is when the king shows up to his fallen kingdom and he sets things right again. It's one of my favorites. An example of this would be like the Lion King. You've probably all let your, your, your kids watch this. Why did the Lion King, why was it successful? Was it just because Elton John sings good, you know, at the beginning? I don't think so. You guys know the story, right? It's like Simba gets exiled from his father's kingdom and he's got this evil Uncle Scar. So many things, so many archetypes here. We get this, right? Scar's kind of a skulky, dark-haired lion. He basically kind of Dupes Simba into believing that he needed to go to a place that he didn't need to go. You guys ever catching this theme <laughs> here? You need to go into this place that your father said you should not go. And then he goes and what happens? The father himself has to end up sacrificing himself to save the son. There's, there's pretty big themes here. Are we catching it? So what does Simba do? He's, he's exiled from his father's kingdom. He spends a lot of time schlubbing with his buddies, you know, like Timon and Pumbo. You guys know those guys. But then he's summoned by his elementary school crush, Nala, right? She comes back and's like, you gotta come back to Pride Rock. Things are bad. And then the animation is perfect here, right? Simba comes back and Scar is doing what? He's abusing the women. All the, all the girl lions are getting beat up. And then he abuses, he slaps Simba's mom. And in the animation, what happens? Simba comes back. And you can't help but in that moment go, yes. You know, it's why you watch Taken with Liam Neeson and you're like, this is what should happen every time, every punch, every murder. You're just like, mm-hmm, "Mm-hmm." we become just crazy town when things like this happen, because you're just thinking, this all makes sense. Simba shows back up, the rightful king. It's the same thing like, you know, at the end of Lord of the Rings, the second one, and they're all just kind of, they're holed up. They're the last, They're the last battle, right? It's like, they're just... They're all going to end up dying. All these orcs are pushing in. The, the horn gets blown, and all of a sudden, they remember, oh, Gandalf's going to show up. Here comes a white wizard, which is never a hero in your, as a kid. When you're a kid, you never think, you know who's a hero? A white wizard, old man. No, but once you watch Lord of the Rings, it doesn't matter how old you are. You're like, yes, yes, do it. Do what needs to be done. <laughs> this Christmas, we need to be reminded that the God King has come, and he will return. He's invited us into the work of restoring the earth, and he is currently in the heavens and does what pleases him. The Bible says all authority has been given unto Christ in heaven and on earth, and now he sends you and me into that world, into the broken mess. Stop slumping in the shadows of the broken world. The king has already returned and given you authority and power. Christ the king has filled you with his spirit. He has promised to be with you always and send you into the world as his emissary, as his ambassador with the authority to conquer darkness that is in the world. And you and I have this message at Christmas. We don't need to be slumped shoulders, weak need, feeble. We don't fight with carnal weapons, that's true. But we have all the weapons that matter. Christ has given them to us. And he's also disarmed the power and the rulers and authorities of the world. Now think about that. It's like the battle has been, it's like what you do with your, with your child when you want them to succeed. You basically just kind of game the system so that no matter what they do in this game, they're going to win. Because you want to give them a little bit of a, a boost of ego, right? It's like, I want my son to like basketball, so I drop the goal. And every once in a while when he's not looking, he shoots an air ball and I just tip it in. And then I celebrate like he did something great. God has done this for us in the gospel. He's disarmed the people we're fighting against. He's died so that you and I are no longer guilty. He's gave us all these unfair weapons. Like we get to call upon him in prayer through the spirit. And he's going to come in and do according to what we've asked. He's given us all these weapons to demolish the enemy. And still the enemy's done a great job of convincing us that you and I are powerless. And it's just, you know, all gone downhill and we're struggling and it's tough. And and listen, I'm not saying it's not tough. It, It is tough. But while the world is looking for a kingly Messiah, a savior king and a God king, we need to be reminded we already have him. Brothers and sisters, we already have the answer because we have the gospel. We have the true and better king in Jesus who stepped off of his throne and came into our struggle and he overcame. This is why he said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've already overcome the world. I love that Jesus said that before the cross. What a man. Like what a king. He's like, I've already beat them. He hasn't even faced the hardest thing he has to face which is the cross, but he already knows I've come and I've defeated them. They have nothing over me. Think about it. We're going to get into this in a couple weeks. Think about his discussion with Pilate. Pilate says, do you not know I have all authority over you? And Jesus says, you have no authority except what's been given to you. All of the disciples run away at the garden of Gethsemane. Judas kisses him and he says, you will betray the son of man with a kiss. And then he says, but guess what? It's your hour. You have one hour under the power of darkness and I'll give myself over to you. One hour. Friends, that hour has been done. When Jesus rose again, that hour's over. The power of darkness no longer rules. And we have a true and better king who reigns forever. I want to close with one, uh, a quote by St. Augustine about the incarnation that I thought was powerful. And if you'll stand to your feet, I'll just quote it to you and pray. Listen to Augustine's understanding of the incarnation. It, it really moved me. He says, man's maker was made into a man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, the fountain might thirst, that the light might sleep, that the way would be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation might be suspended on wood, that the strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die we pray for us. Father, let us be wowed all again together at the incarnation this morning. Jesus, you truly did enter into human history as a babe. You truly did live a perfect life. You truly did die a vicarious death and you are alive forevermore. We believe it, Lord. And we ask would you help us to receive all of the blessings and benefits that come from taking that story and believing and knowing securely in our hearts that you are not just another Galilean Jewish man who was born 2,000 years ago, but you were the chosen anointed Christ. Holy Spirit, today, would you, would you move on us to approach this Advent season with a lot of joy and a lot of courage? Help us to, like Paul in Romans say, we are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God and of salvation. Help us, God, to believe that and to share it and to live it. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.